Last week, we read about where Jesus would lay out to his disciples what would be the signs of the end and what would be the signs of his return. And we have this entire chapter devoted to the return of Christ and what we need to be looking out for in preparation for his return. Not only do we have Matthew 24, we have books of the Bible like Revelation and many large portions of Scripture that talk all about the return of Jesus. Do you think this is important? If God emphasized it so much in Scripture, He wants us to know about it. And so He laid out many, many signs that we can uh, look out for His coming and we can be prepared for it. But He's just stopped short here, as we're going to find out. Well, He wants us to know the signs and He wants us to be ready. The one thing he's not going to do is give us a day and a time. And I'm just going to read the passage. We'll go verse by verse, and I'm going to explain things as we go along. Let's start in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, right away, if you are a student of Scripture and you are at all familiar with Christian theology, this should put a little pebble in your shoe. It should bug you because we as Christians believe that Jesus is God. But according to this passage, there is something that Jesus does not know. Now, does God know all things? In order for God to be God, he must be what we call omniscient. Everyone say that with me, omniscient, all-knowing having perfect knowledge of all things. And here is something that even the Son does not know about the day or hour of His return. Only the Father knows. And to this, the cultist, like the Jehovah's Witness, or the Muslim, they say, aha, aha, Jesus is not God, as you say, because if He was God, wouldn't He know this? Now, in response to that, I need to lay down some good theology for you. How many want to learn about God in church? I'm going to give you some $500 words that will help you understand the nuances of what we mean when we say Jesus is God. And the first word I want to give you is incarnation. Everyone say that with me. Incarnation. For my gente, encarnacion. Or carne asada. Incarnation. It comes from the Latin word, which means flesh. So if we as Christians say, brother, you're behaving carnally. You are behaving according to the flesh. When we say Jesus incarnated, we mean that God came in the flesh. Let's look at John um, chapter 1, verse 1. If you could get there on the screen, please. John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's going to tell us how God came in the flesh. John 1, 1. You there, brother? Just look at your neighbor and say, I love you. Any, can anyone quote that off the top of their head? John 1, 1. It's, but it's somewhere between Zephaniah and um, Philemon, okay? Oh, thank you, thank you. Everybody see that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, who is the Word in this passage? 
Jesus. Jesus is the Word. So the passage is teaching us two things, that Jesus is God, and yet in the beginning he was with God. So what it means here, to make it plain and and, and just kind of bypass a whole lot of other discussion we could be having with Jehovah's Witnesses and people like that, is it saying that Jesus, the Word, was God and that he had the divine nature. Everything that makes God, God, Jesus possesses. All the divine attributes, being eternal, being all-powerful, having creative power to to make things that are not into things that are, to bring life out of death. All those things that are only true of God are true of Jesus. Amen? So the Word was God, and that the Word was fully divine. Does that make sense? And yet, he is distinguished here. The Word was with God. And this is in reference to God the Father. The word with from the Greek is pros, meaning face to face. The word was face to face with God. The son was face to face with the father from the beginning. And we read on in verse 14, if you could scroll down, that around Christmas time 2,000 years ago, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so the Son, God the Son, came in flesh. When we say Jesus is God, we mean also that he is man. He is the God-man. So he has always been God, but at a certain point in history, he entered into our world and became man. He became like us in every way, taking on human flesh. Now, I'm going to give you another word. We're going to go through this kind of quickly. And the next word is kenosis. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And as Jesus, the word, takes on flesh, takes on this human nature, as you might imagine, this is very humbling. You have the all-powerful, eternal creator now becoming like you and me where we are bound by time and space, where we get tired and weak and we depend on other things and other people for our living. Jesus took on these limitations. He humbled himself. That's what kenosis means, self-humbling or self-emptying. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So as I have said, he has the divine nature. He is in the very nature of God, and there's only one God. And yet, as we read on, verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was God, is God, will always be God. And even when he came in the flesh, he did not stop being God. But what he did was he emptied himself, setting aside divine power and privilege when he came to earth. So when he came, he didn't come with an entourage of angels shooting people with lightning bolts you know, making things appear just, you know, out of nowhere doing magic tricks like, you know what I'm saying? He set aside all of that and he became a servant. Not only was he a human, he was a poor human living out in the boonies, a.k.a. Nazareth. So he humbled himself. 
As I had pointed out, there are human limitations. Elsewhere, Scripture says he became like us in every way, yet without sin. He was tempted, yet without sin. He had to use the bathroom. As a child, he had to grow up. Luke 2.52 says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Does God have to learn anything? Does God have to grow? Does God have to eat? You know what I'm saying? Does God have to go from here to there? No, but um, that is true of all men, right? Does God die? No. Jesus humbled himself in order that he may die because God cannot die, but man can die. And Jesus died as man for man. So he humbles himself. He's God, but he takes on this human nature, and with the human nature comes human limitations. Now here's the third $500 term I want you to know. It is economic subordinationism. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Y'all learning something? Economic subordinationism. And we won't turn to these passages, but I will mention them. You could make note of them. John 5, 19, Jesus says, I only do that which I see the Father do. Uh, John 8, 29, Jesus says, regarding the Father, He has sent me and He has never left me because I always do what pleases Him. In John 14, 28, Jesus, after His resurrection, He says, I'm going to go back to the Father who is greater than I. And in all of this, you get the Jehovah Witness and the, Mor- uh, and the Muslim, once again, aha, aha, see, he's saying the Father is greater than I. He clearly is a man. He clearly is a lesser being bowing to, to, to the one God. But remember, Jesus being the God-man is the perfect man. Single ladies, he is the Ryan Gosling of deities. He'll save you with a smolder. Right? Okay. So he is the perfect man. Is the perfect man an atheist? No. A perfect man is someone who worships God, prays to God, fully depends on God, obeys God. Remember John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him. That's what made him perfect. That's what made him sinless was his subordination to the Father and his earthly mission. He was, everything that he did was ultimately out of obedience to the Father. Yes, you could say he went to the cross because he loved us and all that, but ultimately he went to the cross and everything he did was because that's what the Father wanted him to do. That was subordination. Amen? And so that doesn't make him less God, less divine, less eternal, less powerful. It simply refers to the roles of their relationship in that the Son subordinates to the Father um, in the plan of our salvation. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Y'all learned something? Now, that's just the introduction, but I don't want you to think, oh, we're just getting this theological stuff aside. This is wonderful. We should joyfully worship the God who humbled himself to save us. We should marvel at the economy of the Trinity, how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share in the same divine nature, yet work differently to affect our salvation and give us eternal life. This is wonderful. And so with that being said, the Christian worldview, Christian theology, the whole of Scripture informs us that when we read Matthew 24, 36, Jesus did not know the day or hour because the Father did not give him that information. He didn't 
that was just not necessary for the mission. And I think there's something else we need to think about. Why not tell us? He told us all these other signs about when he's coming and what it's going to be like as, as the end draws near, but he didn't tell us the day or the hour. Well, think about it like this. Have you ever had a deadline at school or at work? Now, if you have a project that is due in 30 days, how long will it take you to complete that project? About 30 days, right? You're going to manage, even if, it, even if it only should take a week, you're going to make that thing go for 30 days, or you're going to do it all at like the last minute, right? What if you had one week to do a project? How long would it take you? One week, right? And it might be the same as the 30-day project, yet you'll manage to get it done for the, for the most part, right? Now, God says, I'm coming back in 3,000 years. What is human history going to look like and what is the church going to be like for 3,000 years? They're probably only going to be busy for the last 100 or so, if that. You know what I'm saying? They're going to stagnate, procrastinate, and think we have all the time in the world to get things right till Jesus comes back. But God wants us to always be ready. Amen. He always wants us to be in that state of readiness and preparedness. And that is why even from the earliest times, Christians thought that Jesus could come back in their generation. Even the authors of the Bible, like Paul, it, it is inferred that, that, that he and the, and the churches at that time believed that. He could come back any minute now. Some people believed he already had, though that was an errant belief, and Paul corrected it, but that was their... Uh, if you go back to the 1500s, at the time of the Reformation, they thought they already had the Antichrist, the Pope, you know. And every generation, you see these signs play out, right? You see these signs play out in the world. You see wars, rumors of wars, and all this stuff that's, that's taking place here. And the church is always privy to these things and thinking, man, could it be it? Could it be it? Could it be it? And let's just say that the Pope fit the description of the Antichrist and that he was a fulfillment of that. He was a type. But did Jesus come back in the 1500s? No, he didn't. Okay? But we always need to be ready because these signs are prevalent. Now, let's read on. Verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Very much business as usual. Jesus points us to a fact of history, the Noahic flood. And he says people at that time were completely oblivious to what was about to happen to them. And that's why eat, drink, be merry, be given in marriage. Let's just live our lives. Let's plan our next vacation. Let's save for retirement, what have you. They're just doing them. They're ignoring Noah. Noah. Noah, by the way, was building that ark for 100 years. 100 years. And the Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was preaching, and they're like, who is this kook building a boat? There's no water. Why is he yelling at us? What, you know, what's going on here? 100 years they had time to prepare, to heed the warning, to see the signs of the times, and they didn't listen. They were completely oblivious when it happened. And I think this generation, more than ever, tends to be oblivious to what is going on in the world, unaware of the signs of the times. So you can read a headline about Xi Jinping, the dictator of China, 
who's taking out every monument, every record of the Ten Commandments, and wherever the Ten Commandments were, he, they replace it with his quotes. Sounds like the beast. Sounds like an Antichrist type, don't you think? Because the Antichrist will want to make himself the object of worship. You hear about Christians being slaughtered all around the world. Christians are the most persecuted and reviled people in the world. And we hear about that. And all we can think about here in church is getting out of here so we can beat the Baptist to lunch. Right? And just, just thinking about, hey, what are we going to do after this? You know, just so consumed with our daily lives that we don't see what's going on around us. And let me just recap some of the things we talked about last week. False Christ. False Christ. This is all in Matthew 24. False Christ. There are people in the world claiming to be Jesus who have followers in the millions. In the millions. Jesus said this would happen. Jesus said these were the beginning of the birth pains of the end times. Wars and rumors of wars. And to this day, there are genocides taking place. There are wars taking place. There are, there's the threat of nuclear war. At any given moment, things could pop off. Like, come on, anybody before World War II think, you know, what, what happened to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the atomic bomb? Did anyone even conceive of such a thing? Destruction and death on such a mass level. That is now possible in our day. And there are nations that are, if they don't have it, they're procuring that technology and they want to use it. And yet we're just going to kind of scroll down to the next thing. What, what character from Harry Potter are you? Quiz. And just go about our lives. Okay, famines. I mean, th this is all documented from last week, so I won't, I won't get into it too much. But famines, earthquakes, Christian persecution, apostasy, that is Christians turning away. And here's a positive one, the gospel being preached to all nations. So it's actually documented that in the past 100 to 200 years, there have been massive explosions in the missions movement uh, of the church. And so more people in the past 200 years uh, have been reached for Jesus Christ, more missionaries sent out than the previous 1,800 years combined. It's amazing. I think a lot of it has to do with the Pentecostal movement starting in the early 20th century. They saw that what was happening was like a, an end-time fulfillment in itself that renewed their zeal. We need to go and reach to the unreached people of the world. And so that's been happening and continues to happen. But we need to labor and, and, and um, you know, work toward that. Now, about not knowing the day or the hour, you know, some people claim to know what Jesus even doesn't know. And there, there have been the Jehovah Witnesses. A lot of their following early on was gained through these false end-time prophecies. But there are even Christians that just make us all look silly. Otherwise, fine, doctrinally sound, but Jesus is coming back May 12th next year. You know? And I'll get more on that later because that's really what Jesus wants us to, to know. It's like, yeah, I'm coming back any time, but how should you live? Should you be a doomsday prepper? You know what I'm saying? Or, or what should we be about? We should be about reaching a lost and dying world for the gospel. That's a spoiler alert. That's for the end of the message. But yeah, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They didn't listen to him. They didn't heed the signs and the warnings that were given in that generation. Even in the first, gen even in the first coming of Jesus. Think about this. They all missed him. They all missed him. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you search the scriptures diligently 
Because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that point to me, yet you refuse to come to me. There were people, there were, dude, there's literally over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. And they didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't get it until after he raised from the dead. How many of us think we're going to get it <laughs> on the second coming? We, ju- we got it down. We got all our, our jots and tittles. We got every detail down. We know the timeline. We know who the Antichrist is, according to our political party, you know. And, you know, we, we have all our ducks in a row, and then he comes back, and we all miss it. And if we could, we might crucify him again, you know. Come on, we might miss it. We might miss it. They missed him the first time. We could miss him the second time. And it's funny because we're going to miss him even though we're trying not to miss him. You get that? So fixated on these different signs that we're missing the point. So reading on, verse 40, Jesus gives a couple of examples of what this will be like when he returns. Two men will be taken in the field, uh, or two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Okay? There is some discussion about who is taken and who is left and, and what that actually means. Anybody here believe in the rapture? You know about the rapture. Okay? We're going to be beamed up one day like Scotty. Church caught up in the air to meet Jesus. It's exciting. Now for, for rapture people... This is like their text. Yeah, we're going to be taken, and you're going to be left behind with Nick Cage and all those people, right? But there are different ways that scholars look at this passage. Taken could be taken in judgment, okay? Could be taken in judgment, taken away, swept away like they were swept away by the flood. Or it could be, um, going back to verse 31 of this chapter, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. It could be in reference to that. So taken can be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Being left could be a good thing or a bad thing. But here's the point. We're not really going to know how that plays out until it plays out. But the point is you have two guys working together. Anybody have a job? Are you a member of society? You go to school? Are you, do you socialize? Do you know people? Okay, some of the people that you surround yourselves with, one will be taken, one will be left. They, they talk about two women grinding with a hand mill. You know, it wasn't uncommon for a mother and daughter to work together like that. Or two sisters. Or maybe just you and your best friend. One will be taken, the other left. What's the, what's the dividing line there? Were, were you right with Jesus? Right? And that's always the dividing line in all mankind. Those who are in Christ, those who are not in Christ. One will be taken, one will be left. And that should just sober you as you think about it. All the faces you see on a daily basis. Some will be taken, some will be left. I don't know which one is good or which one is bad, but, you know, some, some are going to go to heaven with Jesus, some are going to go to hell with the devil. And that should sober us, and that should... Make us want to bring more people with us to the Lord. Reading on, verse 42, Jesus begins to give parables. That's how I look at it. These are like parables of how the end times are going to be. A parable is a short story. It uses an example from everyday life to make a point. Okay? 
So, verse 42, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and not let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. Okay, is that plain enough? Like a thief in the night, right? The thief does not announce his coming because he doesn't want you to anticipate him. He want, the element of surprise is to his advantage. And so he's not going to tell you. Jesus is saying the same thing. I'm going to be coming. I'm not going to announce it beforehand. You're, you're just going to have to be ready whenever I come. Reading on. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. This is now a parable of the workplace. We'll read next week, Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the stewards. And it's another workplace parable, basically, or a workplace illustration. There's a master. He has guys who work for him. He gives them some money. He says, invest this for me, put this money to work. And then he holds them accountable when, when, when the time comes, he holds them accountable for what they did with his stuff, how they managed his affairs. Very similar thing. He puts some, someone in charge of his household, and he expects them to take care of his house, his belongings, and the people that are in the house. And then he's going to return and hold him accountable for the job that he did. And how many of us want to be the faithful and wise servant? We want to do what the master has given us to do. It is faithful and wise. We want to do what God has given us to do, and we want to do it in excellence. Amen? But, he goes, but it goes on. It says, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So there will be reward. You don't know when Jesus comes back, but when he does, and if you were good little boys and girls, there will be a reward. And the reward will actually be more responsibility. If you served God faithfully and with wisdom in this, in this life right now, you're going to have more in the age to come. God's going to put you over things. Pastor Joe often talks about this. We will rule and reign with Jesus on this earth. And he may make Joe be the mayor of Chicago. You know, just say, Joe, you have been faithful and wise. Look after Chicago. You know, you, 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 looked at, you were at Elevate, great youth leader, youth pastor. Here's Chicago. You are, a, you are great at your family. I want you to head up the ministry of family services. You know what I'm saying? Just putting people over stuff, giving out jobs, giving out opportunities. That's, that's going to be a great day for some folks. Amen? The day of, and we want it, I want it to be a good day for you, but it's not going to be a good day for everybody. No, it won't. Read on. Verse uh, 48. But suppose that servant is wicked says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Be a good day for the faithful and wise servant. But suppose that servant is wicked. Suppose God gave you something to do and you didn't do it. And you got lazy and you allowed the pleasures of your flesh to drag you along. Notice it talks about getting drunk and carousing, becoming abusive to your fellow servants, abusive to your fellow man. 
and God catches you. When Jesus returns, there's one word I need you to understand, folks, accountability. It is accountability for this world. How did you do with the world I gave you? How did you do with the job I gave you? How did you do with the wealth I gave you? How did you do with the family I gave you? Everything that you have is not yours. God has given it to you, and he's going to hold you accountable for what you did with, with, with his blessing. So this is accountability. So he wants us to be ready. He didn't say when he was going to come back. And I want to put this out here. Uh, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3 because it's taken a long time. We don't know how long it's going to be. As I pointed out, Christians throughout generations thought this could be the generation that he returns. And even as we look at the different signs, like, like just the most recent uh, event that, that should be significant to us was Israel returning to its homeland in 1948. Like that, that, should, that should be a big deal that this ancient nation called the chosen people uh, is returning, just as it was said in the Bible that he would gather his people from the nations and bring them back after uh, 1,800 years of being exiled from that land. He brings them back. Isn't that amazing? That just doesn't happen. And we think, man, it could it could be it could be any day now because that's you know that 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 wasn't too long ago, and, and and we're seeing just things ramp up and escalate around the world. But we really don't know. He could come back today, folks. Think about this. If you knew Jesus was coming back today, how would you live your life differently? Hopefully, you wouldn't live differently at all. But let's read this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the creation. You know, there are people scoffing when Christians say Jesus is coming back, the world scoffs. You know what's ironic, though? Unbelievers have their own version of the end times. Climate change. I want to scoff at Al Gore. You know, Al Gore, where is this heat death you promised? There was a book published in the late 60s by Paul Ellerick called The Population Bomb. He said there's too many people in the world. We're, we're going to run out of food. We're going to run out of space. People who think that way, they use it to justify abortion, birth control, and ultimately eugenics because you got to thin the herd. And how do you thin the herd? You know, when you start thinking that way, that's very scary. So he says, oh, there's too many people. Pastor Joe talked about this last week too. But he was disproved because he said by the 80s, there would be worldwide famine. It would be devastating. It would cripple the, the entire planet. It hasn't happened. Maybe he'll be like certain false prophets. Well, it wasn't the 80s. Maybe, maybe the 90s. You know, maybe, maybe the 2000s. You know, but it hasn't happened. They always have to keep pushing it back. Heat death hasn't happened. The sun hasn't fallen on us yet. Oh, but watch out. Watch out. You know? And so they, they become false prophets in their own right. And then they look at what we say. Jesus is coming back. And they scoff at it as they follow their evil desires. Where is this coming, he promised. Verse 5, but they deliberately, in other words, on purpose, 
They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens and earth came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. These waters also... These waters also, the world of that time was, by these waters, sorry, verse 6, the world of that time was also deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. So again, this is a historical point of reference. He says, God did this once in the time of Noah, and he used water, and he's going to do it again when Christ returns, and he's going to use fire. He's going to renovate the earth with fire, judge the wicked, and start over with the righteous. That's what he's going to do. So when we talk about Jesus coming back, this this is whole package. It's going to be cray-cray. Read on, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is a peek inside of God's heart. We know that God has limited revelation and that He will not tell us the day or hour. He doesn't want us to know, and so we won't. But why? Number one, he doesn't want us to be lazy and complacent, you know, having that deadline in the far off distance, thinking we have all, you know, time now to, you know, do our own thing. But he wants people to be saved. Why is Jesus, he's, obviously it's been 2,000 years, so it's at least 2,000 years. Why wait this long? Why not do it in 200 years or 20 years? Why didn't Jesus just do everything in the first coming? Because he wants heaven to be filled with people. From every nation, tribe, and tongue. He wants all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And as you apply this to your own life, God is being very patient with you. I know I had numerous opportunities to come to Christ in my, in my youth and in my teen years. And I rejected the Lord every time and I knew better. And if I'd have died as a teenager, I would have went to hell. Okay, I accepted Christ at the age of 20, but that was because God was being patient with me, working on my heart, giving me opportunities to repent and to be right with him. God wanted me to be saved. God made a way through his son that I may be saved. God sent preachers to tell me that I could be saved. God put his spirit in me and saved me. Amen. God did it. He was patient with me. It took time. It was a process. And God wants this world to be changed. And God wants this world to be saved. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Right? In light of this, in light of the world is going to end in the most cataclysmic way possible, how ought you to live? And that's the question for us all. According to Peter here, he says you need to stockpile uh, food and you need to get a bunker. You know what I'm saying? And it's cool if you... If you do all this, you, you could do it on your credit card and leave the debt for the Antichrist, right? And then when you get together with your church, you have rapture practices, <laughs> right? Now, this was before my day, 
But Christians in the 70s and 80s, they got silly with this end-time fanaticism. It made them so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. They write books, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, and the Revised Expanded Edition, 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. You guys remember the guy Harold Camping? He said Jesus was coming back in like 2011, May, May 21st, I think. You guys remember that? And then it didn't happen, right? And he said, oh, my calculation was wrong. This guy claiming to know something even Jesus didn't know, right? And it just makes us look silly, but it also makes us useless as Christians because we're over here, we're reading books about the blood moon, we're having conferences where these speakers come and they break down everything and they tell you who the Antichrist is and all this stuff, and you just, ooh, ah, at all of it. And in all that, we're not winning souls. In all that, we're not making disciples. This is what Peter said. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Metro praise. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How ought we to live our lives? Live holy and godly lives. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt with the heat. But in keeping promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Don't want to get too ahead of myself, but folks, we got a major on the majors. Love God and love people. Make disciples of all nations. How do you prepare for the return of Jesus? Not by, you, you know, think, this is a serious question. I, I, I contemplated this as an early Christian. I remember I was um, at the Blue Line station out in Rosemont, and I'm just watching all these people pass by. It just occurs to me, man, man, most of these people are going to hell. Like, how do I live my life? Do I just stop what I'm doing because I was on my way to work? Do I stop what I'm doing and just stand on a soapbox and preach the end is near? You know, what do I do? How am I to live my life? You know, some we had a couple in the first service. They're having a wedding next Saturday. Are they to just cancel their wedding and say, hey, babe, it's all going to hell anyway? Right? Let's, let's forget that. Should we quit our job? Should we sell everything? Just live on a commune together? You know what I'm saying? And live like monks? Or should we, you know, again, be those, those guys with the sandwich board signs? The end is near, the end is near. How are we to live our lives? I have a similar question to that. What would you do if you knew you had about a week to live? Let's say you get a grim prognosis from the doctor. You have a week to live. Again, a lot of people will need to change things. They're going to go back and repair some of the bridges they've burnt, right? They know they need to make things right with people. They know they need to make things right with God. Some people will be so gripped with regret with the things they have left undone. But let that not be said of any Christian. On this day of all days, we are mourning the loss of one of our dear sisters, Diana, um, who is a deacon, and I know we prayed for her family. We prayed with her family in the first service. She, last Monday, was sick. She put out a prayer request. How many ladies saw that? We're expecting her to recover. People get sick all the time. She probably expected to recover, right? 
Even, even as bad, like I'm throwing up, like, okay, but, you know, you'll see a doctor, you'll get medicine, you'll be better, you know? We just, we just kind of expect that, right? No one's, ex- no one's expecting Thursday night. I don't think she's expecting Thursday would be her last day here on earth. Came like that. Very similar question because the coming of Jesus is certain. You just don't know when it's coming. Same with your death. You know you're going to die. You don't know when and you have no control over it. And in, and in both scenarios, it's the same thing. You're going to meet Jesus. And I want to say this. Diana was as ready as anyone ever was to meet Jesus. Not because she had a bunker or a doomsday prepper. Not because she just left her family to go and be a preacher and to just go travel around yelling at people. No, because she was a worshiper of Jesus every day of her life. She wasn't expecting to die, but she was prepared to meet Jesus because she dutifully loved and served her husband because she adored her son and brought him up in the way of the Lord because she has been a blessing to you serving in this ministry. There are people in this room. She has changed your life, right? That's just who she was. She loved God and she loved people. If we could get Someone on the keys will get the music going here. And we need to be that way. Is there anything that we have left undone? Are there any relationships that we need to fix? Is there anything the Lord has been telling us to do and we've been disobedient? We haven't been doing it. The martyr and missionary Jim Elliott once said, and I need to explain him for a bit because this quote hits that much harder when you know what kind of person he was. He was a graduate of Wheaton College in the 1950s, got married soon after, and he and his companions um, were pilots, and they boarded a, a plane to go and minister to the Aka Indians in the remote forests of Peru. And very shortly into their excursion, they were speared to death by these uh, native people. Later on, their widows actually went to minister among the Akas, and they were saved. And their story is documented in the book, The End of the Spear. And so he gave his life for the gospel, and he gave his life for the sake of those Aka people. And God bore much fruit through his death. But here's what he said. When the time comes to die, make sure all you have to do is die. That's it. Jesus, I've loved you every day. I've ran my race well. I've worked my job as unto you. Are we going to quit our jobs? No. But I do want us to have a different perspective on these things. We're not going to abandon the the mundane things of this world because Jesus is coming back. He never called us to do that. That's why he didn't tell us when he's coming back. Because he wants, hey, carry on. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep building. Keep having families. Keep flourishing. Have a society. Make it the best you can be. uh, that, That you can make it. Do that. And, and, and so we are to have that mindset, but we're to also have an eternal perspective. 
If you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. 1 Corinthians 7, 29. Anybody here single and ready to mingle? I'm going to give you the best uh, dating advice if you're contemplating getting married. Okay? This is the context here. Paul is talking to singles, and they're thinking, hey, have I found Mr. or Mrs. Right? This is what he says to them. What I mean, brothers or sisters, is that the time is short. 2,000 years ago, the time was short. How much more now? From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Again, this is not a call to abandon the things of your daily life. Leave your family, you know, uh, because that would totally defy the other commandments in Scripture. We're told to love our families, love our parents, love our children, love our spouses, love our brothers, love our sisters. We're not called to just leave our jobs. We're called to work hard at our jobs. Amen. And so we don't abandon these things. But what's the mindset? Look, 100 years from now, that's not, we're not going to be doing that. 100 years from now, I'm assuming we'll all have passed on by then, you know? 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, a billion years from now, we're, th- everything we're thinking about now is a, is a distant memory. The things that you're making the center of your life, if your family is the center of your life, you need to get over that. Now, you love your family, but Jesus is the center of your life, and you love your family for Jesus. Job and, and, and school and all these things that we just consume ourselves with, We need to get over that. That is not the beginning and end for us. As Christians, the world in its present form is passing away. It won't be here for long. Let's all stand. What kind of lives ought you to live? First Peter 4 7. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. You want to know what you should be doing right now to prepare for Jesus. Because, I mean, it could literally be today. Just just let that, let that get in your spirit right now. That could literally be today. Let's say single people, one of you gets married, and it just happens the night of the honeymoon. Just just because Jesus loves you that much. He, He wants you to be with him. Be alert and sober that you may pray. Notice that when Jesus talks about this wicked servant, they get drunk. I think there's something to be said about sobriety. Having a clear mind. Not filling your mind with mind-altering substances and things of that nature. I notice a lot of my peers, the thir- not, they're now in their early 30s. They're still getting drunk like they did in high school and college. And that's what they need for a good time. We're called to be sober so we can pray. Jesus says that he's looking for faith when he comes back on the earth. And how is faith defined? Those who pray day and night. You want to be ready? Pray. 
above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have uh, received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I want to have the altar workers and the band come up. How ought you to live? It's the same question for everybody. But as I said before, there's always two kinds of people. There are those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. You are not saved. You're not born again. You are still under God's wrath. The day you meet Jesus will be a dreadful day for you, friend. And you think you have all the time in the world. You're not Superman. You know, there were in past generations, we were exposed to death a lot more. Very low life, life expectancy rates, like 40s, 50s. If you were 60, you were super old. Infant mortality rates, women dying in childbirth, plagues that killed millions of people within the span of a couple years. Are you listening? They had a much more keen awareness. I could be gone tomorrow. And that's why in those generations, they, wanted to, they were more religious than we are. They wanted to be right with God. They understood that on the other side of this life, they were going to look up and see Jesus. And they wanted to be ready for that day. If you here do not know the Lord, you can know Him today. Today is the day of salvation, and today is all you have. Bible says that man is like the grass of the field. It, it, it springs up in the morning and then it withers by the end of the day. It's thrown in the fire. Your life is like a vapor. Don't be wicked and say to yourself, I'll, I'll get right with God when I'm ready. So many people say, I'm not ready. I don't know what that means. It sounds like just the biggest vague cop-out statement I ever heard. I'm not ready. What are you looking to get out of student loan debt? That's never going to happen. Come on. You're looking to get all your ducks in a row? You're trying to sow your wild oats, have your fun, sleep around a little bit, and then you're ready? God forbid you should perish. You guys remember the wages of death uh, from last month? You guys remember that? We played Halloween weekend. Elevate did an amazing job. Those people thought they had chances. And then to the Christian... What has Jesus given you to do? We had a, another Juan in the first service. So there was Juan who lost, lost his dear wife. And then there's Juan who owns Nini's, which many of you know. He's going to Bible college this year. He said that he should have done that three years ago. And that he was disobedient. Now God was good. God blessed him and he has a chance. But that would have been something like he meets Jesus and it's like, hey, did you go to Bible college? like we talked about uh, no why I wasn't feeling it wasn't feeling it Lord think of all the excuses that we're making right now 
And when we look up and see Jesus, we can't make none of those excuses. We know they're not going to fly. Oh, I was discouraged, Jesus. Some people just can't wait for God's blessing in their life. They can't wait for their breakthrough. They can't wait for the full, the, the full uh, fruition of their calling to be realized. And they get discouraged. Some people look at themselves too much, what they can and can't do. Some people look at their past too much and how many times they failed. And from their, their past only gives them a point of reference for failure. So they don't see any the future being any different. And they keep looking to these things. But when you look up at Jesus, none of those excuses are going to fly, friend. What has God told you to do? Master to servant. What has he put you in charge of? What has he assigned to you, Cielo? We can't run from God forever. Every head bowed and eyes closed. You can start to make your way up to this altar. If you need prayer, if you are a sinner and you need to be saved by Jesus, these altar workers will pray with you. They will walk you through that process. You can walk out of here changed. You can walk out of here a child of God. You can walk out of here assured, assured that come what may, you will be with Jesus forever. If you are a Christian and there is some point of obedience in your life, maybe God wants you to switch jobs. Maybe God wants you to reach out to somebody and have a conversation with somebody that you, you just haven't had because you're dreading it. Some point of obedience. Maybe God has called you into deeper times of prayer, but you're letting the things of this world edge it out. Where you know, you just know, like, man, I don't want Jesus to see me like this. Like, if Jesus shows up at my door, I got to put a bunch of stuff in the closet. I got to clean up my act. Christian friend, come on up. Brother and sister in Christ, come up, receive prayer. Receive the Lord's blessing and pardon. Let him restore you. Let's sing that. We're ready to sing, come like you promised. And the rest of us worship. Maranatha. It means come, O Lord, in Aramaic. Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Come like you promised. Make this your prayer. We want to speed your coming, Lord.
while the band plays, you don't have to wait for an altar worker. Thanks be to God, you have direct communication to the Father in Jesus' name. If you haven't been loving your spouse, if you just know things are not in order, get it right. God will strengthen you to do His will. God will carry you. The Lord had played in my heart those people who have the I can't attitude, who lack confidence. Others can, I can't. Others can serve God. Others could be good Christians. I can't. I'm just the type of person who can't do it. The Lord, as much as He wants to rebuke the discouragement and self-pity, He wants to strengthen you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to say that in you, that in Him, you can do all things. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Come on, Lord, build our confidence. Build our confidence, Lord. Keep crying out to the Lord. read the words of Paul, the apostle. Paul had what many of us wish we had, but will never have. He knew that his time of departure was near. We can never really predict or plan for it, but he knows his time is coming. He says in 2 Timothy 4.6, 2 Timothy 4.6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Notice he says, not my death, my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now that, that's enough for us, but this is about the return of Christ more over, over all things and our readiness. Hear what he says now. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the judge, who will award me on that day, that day hasn't come. The day you die and that day are two different days. You understand? And not only me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. That's what I want you to get more than anything right now. Those who longed for His appearing. Church, do you long for Jesus to come? Is your heart's cry... Maranatha, come, O oh Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. 
You can get ready to sing that song, Come, Lord Jesus, Come. You know, all who are thirsty, all who are weak, that one. Come, Lord Jesus. Your hearts cry. Come heal the sin-sick world. Come bring salvation to us who are waiting for you. Bring deliverance. Bring healing. Wipe every tear, Lord Jesus. Make all things new, Lord. Is this the cry of your heart? Among other things, how do we prepare for the return of Jesus? By longing for it. By praying for it. By laboring for it. By speeding it. Come, Lord, in my generation. Come, Lord. And as you come, save North Korea. Heal this world. Save sinners. Come on, Jesus. Jesus to come back? You don't want Jesus to come back? Are you just okay with the devil running wild? Are you okay with hell on earth? Come on, Christian friends, stop being complacent. Things are not okay. Jesus is coming with healing in his wings. Jesus is coming with liberty. Jesus is coming with salvation. Jesus will judge the wicked. There will not be any child rapists, sex traffickers getting away with anything. Do you understand? When Jesus comes back, he's bringing Diana with him. Come on. You can't, you got to long for this. Make it the cry of your heart. Make it your song. Come, Lord Jesus. Sing that. If you're not at the altar, I want you to sing that. Catherine, close us in prayer with that heart cry that we long for his appearing. 
Lord, we thank you for this time together, God. And in the same atmosphere that we sing, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. I pray that we each leave this building, God, with that same heart, Jesus, that we may share the gospel and just speak boldly for all those that we encounter throughout the week, God, with that same boldness, Lord, with that same memory in our heart. Come, Lord Jesus, come. May we shout it from the mountaintops wherever we go, Lord. I pray, God, for everyone in here, Lord, may you continue to bless them as they go on about their day. May they remember that tomorrow is not promised and live a life above reproach. Live a life according to your word. Live a life as if you are coming today, right now, at this moment, God. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. If you want to pray and worship a little longer, you can. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a wonderful day.